little foxes. Uh, have you ever looked at an animal or been in a situation where you looked at an animal and you thought it was harmless, but then it kind of turned out that you were wrong and it wasn't so harmless? Uh, I don't know if you've seen the video. It's pretty old. Probably most of you have, but it's still pretty funny. So it's worth, worth watching. But uh, the video of Pinky the cat. Anybody know Pinky the cat? All right, we'll take a look. This is Pinky. He's a male cat, domestic short hair. He's available for adoption. He's pet of the week, Placer County Animal Shelter. He's a very loving cat. Hang on to us, please. Oh, yeah. Pinky. Pinky. Pinky, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <gasps> we got a wild cat on our hands. Pinky, settle down, bud. Careful, Colby. Careful. Why don't I get a catch pole? Somebody get a catch pole. Pinky. Just sit it over there. Yeah, because I'm not going to grab him. I love when he screams bloody murder. Pinky wasn't quite as loving as he pretended them to be. I actually appreciate the cameraman's commitment to getting the shot, even when the guy was screaming in pain. He's just like, yeah, right there. This is really good television. Uh, last month, my in-laws were in town, and my wife uh, took our two little guys and her in-laws, and they went to the Boise Reptile uh, Zoo, and um, they were walking through all the enclosures, and, and you know, most of the time in those kinds of settings, like you're looking at a snake or something behind uh, you know, some sort of glass enclosure, and and they don't move, and you're just like, where are they? And so our kids were kind of just looking around, and, and, um, <clears throat> and our, we have a six-year-old named Kelton, and he kind of got lulled to sleep, and so they, you know, just they're walking through all these enclosures, and yeah, there he is, there he is. And they went into one where there's a, a Komodo dragon named Zero, and, and, uh, and he started to kind of walk over towards uh, the glass, and Zero is not a fan of anybody, and so he lunges really hard full into the glass at Kelton, and Kelton like stumbles backwards and frightened him. He's, he's crying. <laughs> and, and, you know, he almost got eaten by a Komodo dragon. And then, uh, so my father-in-law is awesome. So he sends my older son over there for it because he didn't see it happen. So he, you know, he goes over there, oh, boom, zero like lunges and hits the glass and he falls backwards. And so they were kind of done with the glass enclosures after that. Turns out zero wasn't as harmless as, uh, as he looked as the rest of them. But sometimes we make assumptions about situations or about people, you know, even animals, right? But then we realize it wasn't as harmless once we get into it as we thought. And it turns out uh, that foxes can be that way too. The, the, the title for this series actually comes from a piece of Hebrew poetry that's in the Old Testament from the book of Song of Solomon. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 15, it says these words. It says, Cats for us the foxes, the little foxes, before they ruin our vineyards that are in bloom. Now, admittedly, this is kind of an obscure verse. It's kind of a strange verse and just kind of a little context or backstory. The book of Song of Solomon is an allegory about life and love and passion and faith. And it's a conversation between uh, 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 two people that are engaged to be married. And it's super, like, it's, some of it's pretty graphic and kind of racy. And so maybe don't read it with your kids. Maybe don't read it to your kids. It's kind of the adult section of the Bible, okay? Like, you need to be ready when you're going in to read it. 
But in this particular part, the vineyard is a picture of our lives and of all the good things that grow there and all the good things that we produce. But then we're told that there's something that can ruin it all. There's something that can sabotage it, all the good. And it's not necessarily something that we would expect. Like it, it, it's something that we might actually assume that's kind of harmless. Like you think if he was writing a, war, a warning to you know, farmers and people growing vineyards, like he'd warn against things like drought or a flock of birds or a swarm of insects, but those things are big and obvious. The farmers are prepared for those things. They guard against them. But what Solomon is actually saying is that most of the time, it's little things. It's the ones you don't really pay attention to that can create the most problems for you in your life. That little things can cause big problems, especially over time. And one of the reasons that little things can be so destructive and so devastating is that the damage that they do is always much larger than you think is possible. Which actually, when you think about your life and when you think about life in general, kind of rings true of our lives, of us, right? Of our relationships, of our habits. And it's, you know, because it's not usually the big, vicious wolf that takes you out. It's not usually something really, some big thing, some big event, some big moment. No, like you're guarded most of the time. You, you're, you're ready for the wolf. It's usually the fuzzy little fox with his cute furry little face and he looks all sweet and cuddly. See, there are people that we all know and that we're in relationships with where the thing that's sabotaging their life is a really big thing and it's obvious and everybody knows. It's some habit, some addiction, some problem, some sin that's wreaking havoc in their lives. But, but the reason why this conversation is so important for us here in this room is for most of us, that's not the case for us. Like you got a good life, you have a husband or a wife, you got two or three kids, you got a nice house and nice stuff, you go to church, you give a little bit every once in a while, you believe in God, you're maybe even a follower of Jesus, you're a good person, you try to help people. Your life, quite honestly, is producing some pretty good stuff, which means that you're the exact person that this warning was written to, that it was written to you and to me. And by the way, this isn't the only place in the scriptures where God actually talks about this theme. This idea actually comes up in the New Testament as well. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has marked out for us or has set before us. So it's a different metaphor, but it's the same warning, right? Instead of farming, it's athletics. You're not in a field this time, you're in a crowded stadium. Your life isn't a vineyard, it's a race. And he says something surprising about your ability to compete in this race. He says that there are certain things that aren't bad, they aren't sinful, but they weigh you down, they slow you down, and they wear you out. And they affect your ability to live the life that God created you to, to live, to, to run the race that he's marked out for us. Now, obviously, sin is a problem that can, can and does trip us up and can and does derail our lives. There's no doubt about it. But if you're a follower of Jesus, most of us confront many of those things in our lives and bring them to him and let him deal with them and kind of root out, you know, the, especially the big ones. But what he's telling us here is that there are other things that are causing us problems that are affecting our lives that aren't necessarily evil or bad or sinful. 
They may not separate you from God in the end. They may not send you to hell. They may, but they certainly are going to keep you from fulfilling your potential, from accomplishing your dreams, from becoming who you were created to be, from running the, the race that you were meant to run. And when you kind of combine these two verses together, you combine these ideas together, what they're saying is this, is that there are things that really don't seem like things, that there are threats that really don't seem like threats. There's stuff in our lives that really doesn't seem like a big deal, and so we'll ignore it. But then one day you'll look up and you'll be somewhere you don't want to be. You will have become something you didn't want to become. You will have wished that you would have done more, become something more, wondering why you're not farther along in life than you are. Not really sure why your life isn't quite going the way that you imagined or the way that you hoped. See, the truth for most of us is we're often looking for a big thing when it's really a small thing or a series of small things that's usually the stuff that's holding us back. And so that is what this series is about. And so in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about things like habits and relationships and how we spend our time and money and resources and the things that we do that aren't bad or wrong, but they actually might be creating friction in our lives, weighing us down, slowing us down, and keeping, and, and, and keeping us from becoming and running the race that we were meant to, to run and actually doing some damage to our lives and our souls and our relationships in the process. So today we're going to actually look at one of the most famous people in the Old Testament, a guy named Moses. And um, Moses did a lot of amazing things, but he also had a habit that kept kind of cropping up over and over and over again in his life. And it ultimately impacted where he ended up and what he was able to do in the race that he ran. Now, the, the truth is, is that most of us usually, we don't actually choose bad habits, at least, you know, most of the time. More often, we just sort of slip into them, and then we get stuck. Like, life kind of deals the, you know, the deck out. We get what we're dealt, and because of the circumstances of our life, we, because of family of origin and relationships and stuff that happened to us and all that stuff, we end up, we didn't intentionally get up and choose to have this bad habit. We just sort of, it just sort of happened. I mean, there were a lot of things out of Moses' control. Like, he didn't choose the timing or the place or the events uh, or what was going on in the world when he was born. He didn't choose to be born to a slave. He didn't choose to be adopted by people of power and privilege. He didn't choose the complexity of being a part of two completely different worlds or the identity crisis that that caused for him. He didn't choose his personality. He didn't choose the temperament that came along with that personality. He didn't choose the circumstances he was thrown into, and he was completely unprepared when all of those things came together in a really significant way all at once. But in spite of all of that, he still did choose how he would respond when all of that came together. So we're going to actually start there and look at that story. In Exodus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, and we're going to read verse 11 and 12. It says this. It says, many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and then hid his body in the sand. Now, if you don't know the story, that last sentence may be a little bit of a shocker. You're just like, wow, it's kind of cruising along, and then boom, murder. And honestly, I think... If we kind of put ourselves in Moses' situation, I think the situation kind of, 
came as a surprise to him. Like, whoa, what did I just do? What just happened? What do I do now? What, where do I go from here? How did I get here? What's next? Right? Like, we don't really get the impression that he woke up that day and decided to go down and murder somebody. Instead, it's more like we're actually watching the end game of a pattern that's playing out in his life, an unchecked habit, a temper that he had repeatedly lost control of. Now, clearly, from the story, he didn't have a plan. I mean, we've all watched enough true crime shows to know that him burying the guy in the sand is evidence that this is a crime of passion. Am I right? I'm all right. Like, this person premeditated, all right? That's never going to work. This is a horrible cover-up, burying somebody in the, stand, in the sand right where you murdered them. Like, boom, just cover them up. I don't know. Like, what a terrible idea. Somebody's going to find the body. Then they'll have his fingerprints and his DNA, and they'll run them through APHIS and then through CODIS. And even if they can't find the murder weapon, they'll probably find his clothes and they'll spray some luminol on it, shine a black light. It'll show all the blood spatter. He's, they're going to find him, right? And on top of that, he looked around to see if anybody was watching, which means he knew what he was doing. He knew right from wrong. He can't plead temporary insanity. I've seen that. You can't do that. Things are not looking good for Moses. And so he did what we would do. He runs. He leaves his life behind. He goes somewhere else, tries to start a completely new life, completely new identity. And in a moment, his life was changed. See, the truth is for all of us is that character kind of erodes incrementally. It erodes over time. So we're not always aware when the line of what's happening in our life is moving. And so because it erodes incrementally, we're just not aware. But what happens is something will happen and consequences actually occur suddenly. Like, boom, all of a sudden, I, I'm, I'm the guy that had a temper and then boom, now I've just murdered somebody. And now, now there's a problem. Now, we don't all obviously have a temper or anger problem. And even if you do, like it's actually not a sin to have a temper. And I'm obviously not saying that if you do have a temper, you're gonna end up murdering someone someday. But we've all had moments where we realized that a handful of our attitudes, a handful of our decisions all came together in a moment and added up to something we didn't actually expect to happen. We've all ended up somewhere that we didn't plan, wondering how we got there. How did I gain these 30 pounds? How did I wind up in all this debt? I have no idea why my wife is leaving me. I was really nice to that, really nice to her that one time on her birthday. I don't know why I keep getting let go. I only show up to work late a handful of times the first day. See, sometimes we're not aware of where our habits are leading us. But most, many times we are, we're just in denial. We don't want to actually face it and own it. So we just kind of live in denial. So we cross our fingers and just sort of hope it goes away or hope it doesn't sabotage us, hope it doesn't turn into something big. But, but it, it, it's not going to go away. It's like ignoring the fox and hoping that he'll just leave the vineyard alone. He's not. It's not going to happen. So if you fast forward a few decades in Moses' life, he had had a life-changing encounter with God God sends him back to Egypt to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery, which he does. Then they move, you know, a couple million people into the desert. God calls Moses up on the mountain to have a conversation with him, to begin laying the foundation for what this Jewish society, this Jewish culture would 
look like, giving him rules and laws and instructions. And this is one of the, the, the moments where God gives him the Ten Commandments. And so while Moses is on the mountain with Aaron, his assistant, while he's on the mountain talking to God, um, things kind of get out of control with the people down below. And so God sends Moses back down the mountain to go deal with it. And this is what happens in Exodus 32, verse 19. It says this. It says, when they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf. That was, they, they made this idol to worship since they were like, God's not around. So we need something to worship. So let's make this idol. Let's make this calf. So they made a golden calf. Moses saw the calf and the dancing and he burned with anger. So he threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and he burned it. And this is the ultimate dad move. Then he ground it into powder and he threw it into the water and he forced him to drink it. I love that. It's like, oh yeah, you're going you're gonna to drink it. You want to worship that cow? How about you drink that cow? Right? So when we read stories like this, it's easy to assume that because Moses is the spiritual one in the group, like he's the spiritual leader, or maybe just because Moses is Moses, like that everything he does is right and it's holy and it's good. But God didn't actually tell him to do any of the things that he did. Like he certainly didn't tell him to like just lose his crap and freak out and throw a temper tantrum. Like Moses did all of that on his own. I mean, grinding up the, ca the calf and making the people drink it, I, I, that's a pretty cool move. I think that's funny. It's definitely <laughs> creative. It's also pretty crazy and definitely not helpful. On top of all of that, I don't know, the God of the universe had just taken the time to handwrite crucial foundational instructions with his own finger, carving it into the rock of the mountain and then handing it to Moses and they're like glowing and Moses is like, yes. And he's coming down the mountain and then Moses gets mad and just throws them down and breaks them. Like, can you imagine like, hey God, you know those tablets that you took all that time to handwrite for me and give to the people? Nobody actually got to read them because I kind of threw them down. You think maybe you could do that again? Now, here's what's really interesting to me about these two stories that we've read so far from Moses' life. In between the moment where he committed murder and he killed that guard, and in between this moment where he lost it and destroyed the Ten Commandments, Moses had some really incredible God experiences, ones that blow any God experiences you and I have had completely out of the water. Like, he, had he saw God in a burning bush and talked to God through that bush. Like, he had confronted Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, and delivered the nation of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. He saw the miracles of the 10 plagues. He saw God part the Red Sea. He followed God in a pillar of fire at night. Like even in this moment, he had just spent 40 days on a mountain talking with God. And yet in spite of all of that, his temper is still a problem. Have you ever had an incredible like experience with God, an incredible spiritual experience, and then you thought as a result that you would just magically be different, like you'd magically be changed. Like I know it's just so powerful, it's so beautiful and so real that I just, I know I'm all better now, I'm fixed now. Anybody, no, just, just me? See, 
I think most of us have moments where we're just like, okay, I said yes to God and I gave him my life or I raised my hands during worship and I really felt God's presence or I went to Discover, I went to that class, I joined a small group, I thought I'd be different now. I thought God would have like fixed all the broken stuff about me by now. Now, I'm not diminishing any of those experiences. In fact, they're all essential and critical to our relationship with God. They're truly beautiful, powerful, life-giving moments when we have those kinds of experiences with him. We all need them. There's no doubt about that. But profound spiritual experiences don't excuse us from the practical reality and struggle of actually establishing what it looks like to live a healthy life, to run our race really well. We still actually have to face ourselves even when we've come face to face with God. The good news is we just don't have to do it on our own. We can actually do it with his help. We can do it with his power. By by the way, before we get too far, Moses' problem wasn't anger. It, It is not wrong or sinful to be angry. Moses' problem was that he allowed his anger in different moments and different times of his life to actually be what drove and controlled him. See, the scriptures in the New Testament say, be angry, but don't sin. So you can actually be angry and not do the wrong thing. Him allowing his anger to take control of him. And honestly, that's pretty easy to do, right? If we're like, I mean, this feels like one of those things that's like, I mean, you know, I mean, he did kill a guy, but being angry Like it's pretty normal and natural for us to lose it sometimes when we're angry, right? And if we're being really honest, it actually usually feels pretty good when you do. When you just let loose and just let somebody have it. But just because something is enjoyable, maybe even natural, doesn't mean that it's actually healthy or good. And every time Moses lost it, he did something that he ended up regretting. He hurt himself. He usually hurt other people. See, it doesn't have to actually be wrong or sinful to be weighing you down and holding you back. Little foxes are actually tricky that way. They fool us into thinking that they're harmless, but they're doing damage. So play it out in your head. What's the end game of that habit? Is it good for you? Is it healthy? Is it leading you you towards who you want to be? Is it leading you towards who God created you to be? And if it's not, it might just be that it's a fox that you need to catch. Now, there's one other part of this that I think is kind of important that I want to touch on before we get too far. See, for better or worse, our habits usually take a long, long time to pay off. And we actually see that in Moses' story because several more decades go by. He's now 100 years old, and this happens. Numbers chapter 20, beginning with verse 8, says this. This is God talking to Moses and Aaron. He says, you and Aaron take the staff and assemble the entire community. And as the people watch, speak to that rock over there and it will pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. This is what happens. They're all out in the middle of the desert. They have no water. And so the people just start freaking out. They turn on Moses. And so Moses goes and like falls on the ground and is like, God, why are you doing this to me? We don't have any water. These people need water. They're being jerks. Help me out. So this is what God, this was God's answer. Like, hey, go over there, talk to that rock, and it's going to give you some water. First, get everybody around so they can see. Verse 10. 
says, then he, being Moses and Aaron, summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. And this is great. And he says, listen, you rebels. He shouts, he's yelling at them. Must we bring you water from this rock? What am I, a monkey that I have to dance for you? Then Moses raised his hand and he struck the rock twice with the staff and water started gushing out. So the entire community and the livestock drank their fill. But the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will actually not lead them into the land that I'm giving you. So this is such an incredible story because as I said, there's no water. They're all whining. They turn to Moses. God gives them the instruction. But Moses has had enough of these people, right? Like, and so he loses it. So instead of speaking to the rock, he starts yelling at the people. He's like, look, I got something to say, God, but it ain't to that rock. It's to these people. Listen up, you bunch of jerk faces. Guess we're gonna have to get some water out of this rock. Is it not? I mean, just losing it. Right? You call them names. Not that you deserve it. And then instead of doing what God told him to do, and talking to the rock, he takes the staff and he strikes the rock in anger twice. Now, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us. The problem is he didn't do what God told him to do. He lost his temper and he disobeyed God. And the people, look, I don't want you to miss this. The people got the water, but they didn't get what they really needed and what God wanted to give them, which was a demonstration of who he was who he is, so they would know yet again the, the one who was with them, the one who was on their side, the one that was providing for them, the one that was taking care of them. And here's the saddest part of Moses' story. His temper obviously didn't derail his life. He led the people of Israel for decades, but he ended up missing out on God's promise. He ended up missing out on the thing that he had spent his life working for, hoping for, looking forward to leading God's people into the land that he had promised them. Also, it's interesting to note that Moses did the wrong thing, but God still did the miracle. See, sometimes we think because God has grace for us in a moment that he's actually, that, that what we did was okay. But God's grace for us and who we are is not his approval of actually what we did. And sometimes we think that, oh, it turned out all right. God just sort of made it work out, okay. And God's going, yeah, but you, you, didn't, you didn't have to strike the rock. That's not what I wanted you to do. This, isn't, this wasn't the end game. See, our, our dreams and our goals and our intentions and plans and hopes and all that stuff, they're important, but they can actually be undermined by our habits. In the end, our lives don't actually rise to the level of our hopes. Our lives will fall to the level of our habits. How far you and I go in our lives, who we become along the way, is largely determined by our habits. If you were to watch a video of you, like psychology tell us, tells us that about 50% of everything you do on a given day is autopilot habit. It's just a habit. What you do in the morning how you talk to your kids, what you eat, when you leave for work, whether you stop at the donut shop, like all of that stuff, it's just habit. And so if we were to watch a video of ourselves, of our day, we wouldn't see somebody who's thoughtfully navigating each and every circumstance that comes their way and making you know, very thoughtful 
decisions about what they're going to, you would just see somebody who's just largely operating on autopilot just out of habits. See, habits are the difference maker in our lives. Who we become is largely determined by our habits, which is frustrating because we want to believe that it's like believing in ourselves or having a lot of heart or wanting to do good with our lives or being well-intentioned or being gifted or setting the right goals or praying hard enough and reading the Bible. But listen, we've all known people who were super gifted or who prayed all the time or who read their Bible all the time and their lives were still a mess and still got derailed at the end. The truth is, the habits that are most likely to sabotage you often seem so small and occur so naturally in your life that you don't even think of it as a habit. What a tragedy that Moses became known as the guy whose temper kept him from accomplishing the incredible thing that everybody believed he was created to do, especially when his whole life was about that thing. He had talked face to face with God, but he never faced down this habit in his life. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot about this stuff in his letters in the New Testament, and this is what he wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. He says, don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old self and its practices, so put on your new self and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. So this is so powerful because it's just so interesting, right? Like, you don't have to face yourself in your own strength by yourself, but, but part of what he says here, I think, can be a little bit confusing because, like, think about it. Being renewed and stripping off your old nature and putting on your new, like, becoming somebody new, like, that's a pretty big process. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, be transformed. That's a really big process. That level of change seems like that's an area that would solely belong to God. That's what he does in our lives. But over and over again in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, and here especially, he says this. He's like, that, he puts that responsibility on us. He's placing it within our reach. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Where do we even begin? Well, he actually points us towards a couple of things in the verses that we read. He says, learn to know your creator so he can teach you to be like him. Learn to know your creator so he can teach you to be like him. See, we change and we're made new. We become someone new when we get to know God and we learn to be like him. Getting to know God, those are those really profound spiritual experiences. That's necessary. It's worship, it's prayer, it's time in the scriptures. But we also actually have to learn to become like him where we take those experiences, we take that, that time in prayer, we take that time in worship, we take our time together in church, we, we take what we're learning in the scriptures and we actually begin putting on our new selves. We do the hard work of stripping off the old stuff and getting rid of the old habits, addressing all that destructive stuff and establishing a new life and health, healthy habits in our lives. See, Moses certainly knew God and there's, no doubt about that. In many ways, he had actually learned to be like him, but he also had a habit that he never dealt with, part of his old self that he just never stripped away. Could I be really vulnerable with you for a moment? So there's been a fox in my life, most of my adult life, and it's been my relationship with food. It's not sinful to be a foodie. It's not sinful to like food or to even love food. Anybody love food? I love food. 
But I have to tell you this, that fox, that habit has often become a different seasons in my life become a dependence on an emotional dependence on food that's been destructive in my life. And if that doesn't seem like that big of a disclosure to you or feel like that big of a deal, that's because you're not standing up here naked right now (laughs) like I feel. But here's what I know. I know that that habit, that's not sinful. It's not evil to enjoy a taco. God gave us our senses. He gave us food. God wants you to enjoy great food. I think having a great meal, enjoying great food can be a very spiritual experience. But developing an emotional dependence on food, that's not healthy. That doesn't produce any good in my life. And I can tell you, I know a lot of ways in which that experience, that habit has sabotaged my life. I realize the irony of talking about this while wearing a shirt that says, we'll work for queso. Is there anything better than chips and... Okay, don't give me... Because it's kept me from running the kind of race that that I've wanted to run. It's impacted my family. It's obviously impacted my health. It's impacted my relationships. It's impacted my leadership and my ministry. There's no doubt about it. And so I can choose to try to get on top of it and begin to deal with it, or I can just be like, ah, it's really hard. So here's the wisdom. I I don't know what your fox is, but I guarantee you there's one kind of lurking around in your life. Here's the wisdom. Here's the challenge for us in all of this conversation starting off today begin to change before you actually have to change. Begin to address those issues before you have to. Don't wait for something catastrophic to happen before you change because once you strike the rock, it's done. You you can't unring that bell. You can't go back. And that's the message in this verse about little foxes. Don't wait until the whole crop, till the whole vineyard is threatened or ruined to actually go do something about that fox. The second you notice, that's the moment to take action. No, and notice it's, it's, it's a command, catch the little foxes. But it's also full of faith. I mean, think about it. It's telling you, you're not doomed. No matter what the foxes are in your life, you're not doomed. You're smart enough to see where it's headed. This fox doesn't have to destroy your life. Play it out in your mind and change before you have to. Get to know God. Learn to be like him. By the way, the best way to erase a habit is simply to replace it by practicing its opposite. We strip off our old selves by putting on our new selves. If you find yourself greedy, there's nothing wrong with appreciating nice things. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have more money. Falling in love with it, finding yourself being greedy. Okay, well, now it's going to be something that's going to hold you back. So how do you deal with that? You begin to just practice generosity. Every chance you get, you move, you make the decision to be generous. And it will actually begin to uproot that greed in your life. You struggle with selfishness, start to serve other people, make that a priority in your life. You got anger issues, 
lean into forgiveness and patience. Those are all choices. Yes, it's hard work. Of course it is. That's why so few of us actually do it. But you don't have to face you alone, that God is with you and he's for you and you can actually get to know him and he will teach you how to be like him. That's how you keep the little fox from ruining the vineyard. That's how you tackle those habits that aren't bad, they're not sinful, they're not evil. But you know, you know, you can think right now, you can think of something right now in your mind. It's just that thing that's in your life. Don't wait. Don't wait. This is an opportunity. God's here. You can have a conversation with him about that right now today. In fact, why don't we pray?